Church family, today uh, we are privileged to have a guest speaker with us, and if you've been with us for a while, you know exactly who that is. Uh, his name is Randy Patton, and he has been involved in uh, just biblical counseling uh, in that movement, and spearheading it in many ways, and leading in it in many ways, and caring for people, and uh, counseling individuals, caring for pastors, counseling pastors, training up uh, biblical counselors as well. And uh, we're just thrilled to have him with us. Uh, His wife, Cindy, has been with him in the past as well. We miss her, but we're grateful to have Randy here. And so, Randy, would you please come up now and share with us today? Let's welcome him. Well, thank you, Pastor Chris, and good morning, everybody. It's a great privilege for me to, to be back here. I just always have such wonderful experiences when I come, and uh, you folks always listen so well to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and I always enjoy the, the time of worship. Uh, what brings me to California uh, this weekend is a biblical counseling training conference being hosted by North Creek Church, and uh, this was weekend number one of three weekends. It's classes are taught one weekend a month for three months in a row, and there were 650 attendees this past weekend. And representing 90 churches, and there were over 50 pastors present. It was a very strategic, wonderful opportunity. And uh, they've got two more weekends of training, and my understanding is that if you're interested, you can still register, and you'll be able to listen uh, to the audios of the presentations made this weekend, and I hope you will uh, consider it. And uh, as I was thinking about uh, what I might speak on uh, this Sunday, it dawned on me that I've had the wonderful privilege of being here a multiple times, six, maybe seven times, I don't know for sure, but I have never really talked directly about biblical counseling. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time for me to do that. And so if you'd find your notes, please, I want to talk to you on the subject of what is it that makes biblical counseling unique? Now, probably some of you right away are thinking, okay, uh, maybe I might as well go see if I can uh, find another church where they talk about something that doesn't relate to me because I'm not a counselor. Well, let me kind of put that to rest right away by saying the fact is every one of us is a counselor. I'm talking, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm talking to you today. You are a counselor. Now, let me make, uh, make the point on that. How many of you are parents? Do you ever tell anybody how to think or act? Uh, how many of you happen to have a friend? Do you ever advise them on a decision they're making? Here's one. How many of you are wives? Do you ever tell somebody how to think or act? Well, the fact is, we're all counselors. And I think we can acknowledge that for many of us, the counsel we give is what we would, the counseling we do, we would call informal counseling. That's like friends with friends. And I think oftentimes it's what we're doing with our children, with our spouse. We're all counselors in that regard, but many of us do formal counseling, and formal counseling tends to be scheduled, and there's an acknowledged leader, and and as Christians, we're focused around the Word of God. We may be using a book on a particular subject to help us understand that scripture, but the fact is we're all counselors. We all give counsel informally, and many of us over the course of our life are going to have the opportunity of doing formal counseling. I also want you to realize that all counsel or advice that we give grows out of our worldview. And worldview is a term that's come into prominence in the last few decades. And basically it means worldview is how you look at life. 
And it's how you interpret what's happening to you, what's happening in the world around you. And it's the lens through which you look and interpret things. And the fact is, when we're giving advice to somebody, it reflects our worldview. It reflects how we happen to look at life and and interpret and how we try to make sense of what's going on in our world. And there are some beliefs that become life and counsel changing commitments. In other words, we all have a variety of beliefs, but they're held in, in different levels of, of, of significance. For example, when my wife and I are traveling, if we're going to, to go to a fast food restaurant other than breakfast, I mean, for her, it's, it's always going to be Arby's. And if I'm traveling by myself, it's going to be Wendy's or Firehouse Subs, all right? Because we have different preferences on that. Well, those kind of preferences are not the kind of preferences that necessarily change your advice when you're counseling somebody. But there's other things that we think about. There's other things that are part of how we look at life and how we like things to be that does affect how we advise people. So with that in mind, consider this. What is biblical counseling? And you're going to hear me use that phrase multiple times. Pastor Chris mentioned it as he introduced me. So when we talk about biblical counseling, what is it? Well, here's some definitions for you to consider. Biblical counseling is is a Christian trying to help someone struggling with the problems of life and living using the Bible. That's biblical counseling. It's a Christian trying to help somebody who's got a tough time or tough area of struggle, and you're trying to help them using the Bible. Or here's another way of putting it. Biblical counseling is the private compassionate, intensive ministry of the word. So let me take that apart. Biblical counseling, we talk about it, is typically done privately. It's compassionate. Those of us who are involved in the biblical counseling movement, um, the vast majority of there's like 2,500 counselors are certified with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, an organization that I am affiliated with and used to lead, Uh, There are 2,500 members almost around the world, and there's hardly any of them that charge for their counseling. Most frequently, biblical counseling is offered free of charge through a local church's ministry. That's, That's what happens here. And then it's the intensive ministry of the Word. And by intensive, I would draw comparison with that compared to the general ministry of the Word. So, for example, what I'm doing today and what you experience every Sunday when Pastor Chris is speaking or if you're in a a Sunday school class and when somebody stands up and teaches a group of people, that's the general ministry of the word. I've got one message today. Everybody gets the same thing. Whether you are a brand new Christian or you've been walking with Christ for, for 50 years, everybody gets the same thing. That's general discipleship. But that's not biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is not general discipleship. Biblical counseling is intensive discipleship. Biblical counseling, when I'm meeting with somebody, an individual, or maybe I'm meeting with a couple, or maybe on occasion I meet with a family, it's not general ministry. I'm seeking to minister the Word of God. I'm seeking to open my Bible to the page that has the principles that they need to understand and apply the most right now. Biblical counseling is ministering the Word of God precisely to somebody where they uh, need it the most in their circumstances right now. It's the private, compassionate, intensive ministry of the Word. Here's another definition. Biblical counseling is a Christian 
who needs to grow and change, humbly and lovingly trying to help somebody else who needs to grow and change so that God gets the glory. It's amazing. God and his providence and God and his infinite wisdom chose to use people like me, who doesn't have his act together, who needs to grow and change, over the years to meet with hundreds or thousands of people who don't have their act together and they need to grow and change. God uses people who need to grow and change to help other people who need to grow and change so that they can turn around and help other people who need to grow and change so that he gets the glory. That's what biblical counseling is. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to view yourself as a biblical counselor, not just as a Christian counselor, but you want to view yourself as a biblical counselor. I want my counsel to grow out of an understanding, an accurate understanding and teaching of the Word of God. Now, a little bit ago, I said there's some views that we have that uh, shape our lives and our counsel. You know, it's not your view about fast food, eight, fast food restaurants that you prefer that changes the counsel you give people. But there are other things that we as Christians believe that does affect significantly our worldview and should influence in a very profound way the advice we give to people. So one of those is a commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. That is a commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. That is, we believe that the Bible, the word of God, is without error. Now, our view for that grows out of 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, where the Bible says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That means that the, the, God, the, the Bible is God's communication to us. Uh, other scripture speaks about God breathing out his word. That's what's talked about in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. And then the Greek word that's translated inspired means breathed out. In other words, this is God's communication to us. You know, the, our Bibles are filled with thousands and thousands of words but among, among veteran Christians, in Christian shorthand, we refer to this as the Word. It was God's communication to us. And His communication to us reflects His character. God is perfect, so His Word is perfect. Because it was breathed out, holy men of God were spoke from Him. This is a significant issue in counseling because it answers the question, what is our authority? In other words, when you're trying to advise somebody or when I'm trying to counsel somebody, a reasonable question for me to consider, a reasonable question for um, them to consider is, why should I listen to you? And if you're seeking counsel, this is an important issue for you. Why are you seeking counsel from that particular individual? What is their authority? And for those of us committed to the cause of biblical counseling, one of the things that we want to, to stress from the very beginning, our authority is not in my education, not in my experience. My authority comes from my understanding of the scriptures and my ability to be able to explain it to you. The authority is with the scriptures, not with me. That is significant in how you advise people. And I would encourage you, whether you're giving informal advice or formal advice or formal counseling, 
as much as possible, you want to seek that your advice grows out of the inspired word of God. Now, not only do we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, but we also believe we also believe in the sufficiency of Christ and the scriptures. We have a commitment to that. Second Peter 1, uh, verse 3, speaks about it this way. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we not only believe that the Bible is inerrant, that this is God's word to us, but we believe that the Bible is sufficient. Now notice what the Bible says it's sufficient for. His, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, the Bible says about itself that in this book is everything you need to know how to think and act in a way that pleases, honors God in our day and time. Uh, some people have misinterpreted the teaching on the sufficiency of the Scripture, and they say, well, you know, the Bible's not sufficient for, for everything, and the Bible doesn't claim to be sufficient for everything. It claims to be sufficient for life and godliness. So, for example, if on the way home today, your car breaks down, I hope it doesn't, if your car breaks down and you get off to the side of the road, I mean, don't grab your Bible looking for an answer on what to do with your car that broke down. The Bible doesn't claim to be a book on mechanics. But if you want to know how to think about that trial and how to act in the midst of a frustrating situation, the Bible will tell you about that because that's life and living. That's the stuff of life. And the Bible is sufficient to tell us how to think, how to act in all of the areas of life. The Bible will give us direction on how to think, act, and so forth in these, in these wide variety of areas. One of the things that has distinguished biblical counselors in comparison to other counseling models in our world today is our commitment to the sufficiency of the scriptures. And <clears throat> in our world today, there's over 250 distinct philosophies of counseling that are being taught in institutions in the United States and around the world, 250. And every one of them claims that they've got the best model and the best way of helping people and so forth. And, um, and then there's us in biblical counseling who say that we believe in the sufficiency of the scripture, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. This is a, a major issue among evangelical Christians. There's a, some division over that. So here's a statement that was written by Dr. David Pallas and a leader in biblical counseling that I have found very helpful. Biblical or neuthetic counseling <clears throat> was founded in the confidence that God has spoken comprehensively about and to human beings. The Bible, his word, teaches the truth. His word uh, teaches the truth. Biblical truth and methods are to be pursued and promoted in counseling. An integrationist attempts to wed secular psychology to conservative Christianity. He believes that the scriptures are not comprehensively sufficient, that the Bible is in some essential way deficient for understanding and changing people. He believes that the church, therefore, needs systematic input from the social sciences. Integrationists aim to import the intellectual contents 
and psychotherapeutic practices of psychology into their counseling in a way that they think is consistent with biblical faith. Now, as you think about what kind of counselor you're going to be as you give advice, both informally and maybe on occasion formally, you're going to have to grapple with this issue. And that is, basically, the question is, is your Bible thick enough to help you handle life in our culture? In other words, in our culture, with all that we're facing, is the Bible enough to help me think about how to handle life and the issues of life and living? Or do I need the Bible plus Freud, plus Maslow, plus Jung, plus any uh, Dr. Phil? Do I need the Bible plus Oprah? I mean, or is, the, is my Bible thick enough to help me handle the issues of life and living? Well, think with me about, about this. Here's a well-known passage of Scripture And oftentimes we use this verse, this passage of Scripture, when we want to talk to somebody uh, like a new believer, and we're trying to disciple them, and we're going to teach them about um, the Bible and being the Word of God and so forth. So I want you to notice what it says, though, about itself. The Bible says about itself that it's good in four areas. So here's the Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for... Number one, teaching, meaning that your Bible that you've got in your lap or beside you right now is good to teach you, to get you headed in the right way on the issues of life and living. So, so just pick an issue, anger, fear, worry, depression, temptation, uh, guilt, forgiveness, role of the husband, role of the wife, role of parents, role of children, how to earn money, how to save money, how to spend money, uh, dealing with your past. I right, just pick an issue. Just pick an issue, and you can go to the inspired and inerrant and sufficient Word of God, and the Word of God will give you direction to get you headed in the right direction on how to think about every one of those. But more than that, the Bible is good for more than that. The Bible is also good for reproof. The word reproof means more than the fact that your Bible will tell you at times that the way you're thinking or the way you're acting is wrong. It will do that. But the word translated reproof means more than that. It means the Bible is good to bring us to the point where we will admit we are wrong. That's a big deal. Some of you as parents, I mean, you know what that's like when you're telling a child what they're doing is wrong. And you may make them sit down, but basically what's in their heart is I'm sitting down, but inside I'm standing up. In other words, you know, they're conforming, but... They're not convicted that they're, they're wrong. The Bible is good to not only tell us what's wrong, but to bring us to the point where we'll admit that what, what we're doing, the way we're thinking, our acting, or our motives are wrong. It's good for reproof. But more than that, the Bible is good for correction. I love this one. It's a very precise word, and it has this concept to correct the way. The word means to make to stand up again that which has been knocked down. So as we go through life, we come into the world, we're sinners by nature, sinners by choice, 
as we follow our natural wisdom and so forth until we are born again by the Spirit of God, and then we start paying attention to the Word of God, if we're not following His teachings, then we get ourselves into difficulty. We need to be rebuked, reproved, but the Bible is good not just for telling us what's right or how to convicting us that what we've been doing is wrong, but the Bible is good to correct the way, to take that which is knocked down and to make it to stand up again by His grace. And I love that. Uh, And I love being able to help people who come to counseling. Oftentimes, they come to counseling because they're knocked down in life. They're knocked down in their marriage. They're knocked down in parent-child. They're knocked down in their morals. They're knocked down with discouragement. Their, their, Their sinful actions have got them into some kind of difficulty. And by God's grace, as they come to understand the Word of God, and then they seek to obey it, what happens in counsel these lives is what will happen in all of our lives as we hear and obey the Word of God. Though we were, at one point we were knocked down by God's grace, we can stand up. It's interesting at this counseling conference, I, in one of my teachings, I made those statements. And later in one of the breaks, people come up and say, Randy, that was me. Because I had talked about, you know, I'll bet with some of you if 10 years ago, Someone would have told you that in a beautiful weekend in California, you'd be paying a bunch of money and driving maybe hundreds of miles in some cases, paying motel bills to go listen to preachers hour after hour after hour. If somebody would have told you you'd be doing that 10 years ago, well, you'd had some choice language for them back then. But here you are. And I said to the crowd that I was teaching My guess is that by the time some of you leave on Saturday afternoon, you're going to turn to your traveling friend and say, this has been one of the best weekends of my life, and tomorrow's the Lord's Day. When that happens, that simply indicates that you've had a change of heart because you were once you were knocked down, by God's grace, you're standing up now, and you're at a conference because you want to help other people learn to stand up. Well, more than that, notice the Bible is good not just for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's, all, it's good also for training in righteousness. What this means is that the Bible will teach us how to discipline our thinking, discipline our behavior, so that we can live the future of our lives differently than we have the past of our lives. This is part of what's in my heart when I like to say to my counselees, if you will come and you will listen to the word of God and you will seek to discipline yourself to obey it, I can just assure you the future of your life is going to be a whole lot different than the past of your life than you've been telling me about. And I don't say that because I think I'm an all-fired hot counselor. I say that because I have great confidence in the word of God. Because God's word is given to us to teach us, to give us what is t- what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and then to teach us how to stay right. Is what the Bible does. Now think about that. If your Bible is adequate to teach you, to give you teaching, to reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, if the Bible is sufficient to do that, then let me just ask you, what is any secular theorist going to do to add and improve that? What's Freud got to say to add to that? Or Maslow, or Jung, or any of the modern uh, theorists? A moment ago, I said that as a Christian, if you think seriously about these matters and take them seriously, you're going to have to grapple with this. Do I believe that my Bible is thick enough? Do I believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture? Well, this is an, this is an issue not just for individual Christians. This is, an, this is an issue for churches. 
And it's not just for individuals and churches. This is, an in, this is a situation, this is a matter that has to be addressed by denominations. Let me show you um, an attempt by the Southern Baptist Convention years ago to address this issue. And I've got what I'm going to show you. It's in your notes. But what I'd like you to do, I think it'd be most helpful if you just watch the screen and let me uh, read this to you. Here's a resolution they had on the sufficiency of Scripture in a therapeutic culture. Whereas Southern Baptists are committed to the authority, the sufficiency, and the relevance of the Bible, and whereas the Bible teaches that human beings are created in the image of God, made by Him, like Him, and for Him, and that because of sinful rebellion against the Creator, our entire being suffers from sin's corruption. There it is. And whereas all aspects of our lives, including our spiritual, moral, and psychological conditions, are to be informed and governed by the application and obedience of the Holy Scriptures, wherefore, in this therapeutic culture, physicians and counselors often ignore human sin and its effects. They neglect our most fundamental human and spiritual needs, and therefore, they misunderstand our condition, they mistreat our problems, and sometimes unintentionally do more harm than good. And whereas an uncritical acceptance of the therapeutic culture too often has infected our pulpits, our ministries, and our counseling, And whereas our churches often have neglected our God-ordained responsibility for the care and cure of souls, becoming practically ineffective, both marginalizing ourselves from the culture and being marginalized by the mental health establishment. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in St. Louis 2002 Uh, affirm Christian counseling that relies upon the Word of God rather than theories that are rooted in a defective understanding of human nature. And resolved that we affirm that any method worthy of the name Christian counseling must address the roots of our problems and reveal the crux of God's solution the redemptive work of Christ and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, by which the depths of sin and the fullness of grace are made known. And be it further resolved that while we affirm that there are real conditions that warrant legitimate medical treatment, we reject the assumption of the therapeutic culture that offers a pharmacological solution for every human problem. And be it finally resolved that we call on all Southern Baptists and our churches to reclaim practical biblical wisdom, Christ-centered counseling, and the restorative ministry of the care and cure of souls. That'd be a good time for an amen. This is significant for all of us because it answers the question, Who and what is our guide? So as you're giving advice, I mean, consider that. Who and what is going to be your guide? And I'm exhorting those of you that name the name of Jesus Christ that you quickly answer, well, my guide is the Word of God. 
Well, there's another commitment that I want us to consider, and that is a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 11, 28 and 29, we have these wonderful words from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all you who weary are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ invites the weary and the heavy laden. And in our sin-cursed world, with our sinful responses to so many circumstances, personally, but then surrounded by others who are not living by biblical priorities, we oftentimes find ourselves weary and heavy laden. And I want you to notice this invitation. Christ says, come to me, and I will give you rest. But he talks about taking his yoke. That means a yoke, as you know, was an implement that was used to connect animals together for the purpose of accomplishing work. So being a follower of Jesus Christ does have some obligations. But we're committed to the the gospel of Christ, inviting people to follow Jesus Christ. I pastored a church in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana for 12 years. And I got trained in biblical counseling during, uh, after my second year of pastoring. And as my counseling skills and developed, and the word got out that I was willing to meet with people to help them from the scriptures, I began having people come to see me. And in the last half of my 12-year pastorate, I consistently led more people to faith in Christ in the counseling room than I did on Tuesday night visitation when I was out visiting people in the community and trying to find folks that are new to invite to our church, but also to talk about Christ. We're committed to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 says this. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Notice that Paul says that the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is of first importance. And one of the marks of wise biblical counselors is that we are alert to examining whether or not the person coming to seek help is truly born again. There's a lot of people in our culture here in the United States today who know some, have some information about the Lord Jesus Christ and they think positively about him. We could say that they're a fan of Jesus, but as you hear about the way they're living and the priorities that they manifest, it's obvious they are not a follower of Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to spend eternity in heaven with God, you've got to be more than a fan of Jesus. You need to be a follower of Jesus. There needs to be true repentance and a commitment, repentance from your sin, a turning from sin and sinning to God and righteousness, an acknowledgement that what Christ did on the cross of Calvary satisfies God's holiness and makes it possible for God to show mercy to us righteously. This answers the question in counseling, what is your focus? And good, wise, biblical counseling, whether it's done informally or formally, is going to be Christ-centered. When you're talking with your friends about the difficulties they're having with their children or the difficulties they're having with their boss at work or maybe a neighbor, I want to encourage you, always bring Christ into the discussion. Good, wise, fruitful biblical counseling is focused around Christ. It answers the question, what is our focus? Well, there's a fourth commitment that I want to 
bring to your attention. And that is that wise, fruitful biblical counseling always has a commitment to making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're familiar with Matthew 28, 18 to 20. This is what we call the Great Commission passage. This is right before Christ goes, goes back to heaven. And the, verse, the passage starts out, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the, the Father and the Son and, uh, and the Holy Spirit, Uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What I want to draw your attention to is the Great Commission is, is not to go. The wording is having gone. God's going to assume that we're going to go. The Great Commission is to make disciples. The Great Commission is not to get professions of faith. So a disciple is a long term follower. It's a long-term learner. And the goal of every individual Christian ought to be to contribute to the disciple-making process. A major focus of any Bible-believing church ought to be to make disciples of Christ. And again, I want to distinguish. There's a difference between doing things that can get people to make a profession of faith or say a prayer. That's not what we're exhorted to do. Our command is that we're to build disciples of Lord Jesus Christ, to see people come to faith in Christ uh, through prayer, admit their sin, trust Christ as their Savior. But just doing that is not enough. That's one reason why uh, I find myself being very troubled even during COVID when we had some well-known Christian leaders running advertising on TV and uh, trying to give people some hope. That's a commendable goal. But say, here's a prayer. If you've never trusted Christ, just say this prayer and thinking that that means a person's going to go to heaven, the goal is not just to get somebody to say a prayer. The goal is long-term followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd say to those of you who are parents, you want to evangelize your children. As your children are growing up, your home ought to be a mission, viewed as a mission field. We want to be pointing our children toward Christ and seeing them come to faith in him. But after their children pray to accept Christ, then your home becomes a, a place of discipleship. We want them to learn how to think Christianly. We want to learn how to teach them how to, to put off the old man, put on the new as a result of transformed thinking, how to, to grow in grace. We want to teach them progressive sanctification about how to grow, become a long-term disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great concerns uh, these days are the number of young people that grow up in Bible-believing churches, some who attend Christian schools, go to Christian colleges, but after they're out on their own, they're absent from the church, and they basically abandon the faith. And uh, my suspicion is that in many of those cases, it's because the children followed mom and dad's faith, but mom and dad's faith never became their faith. And they conformed to kind of get along, and have greater peace at home, but they were never truly regenerate. And I just would encourage you to consider your, yourself. Am I truly born again or do I just go along and I found a somewhat religious life to be a pretty acceptable way to live? But is there, a, is there truly a, a, a love for God in your heart? Are you drawn to Christ and his word? Well, this is significant in counseling because it answers the question, what is our God-given disciple? 
God-given assignment. And one of the things that happens in good biblical counseling is that the people grow in their faith and they become a stronger, uh, long-term follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me talk to you about a fifth commitment, a fifth part of your worldview that you ought to have as a Christian, and it will affect the kind of counsel you give people. And that is a commitment to the kind of change spoken of in the Scriptures. A commitment to the kind of change spoken of in the Scriptures. Think about this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this, these two verses are talking about people who have committed sin in a particular area so many times that they become known for that sin. So, in other words, you do not become known as a drunkard because you got smashed at last year's New Year's Eve party. You become known as a drunkard when uh, drunkenness has been repeated so often in your time in your life, you become known for that. You do not become known as an adulterer because you're unfaithful to your spouse one time. You, you do not become known as a homosexual because you had one homosexual uh, interaction. You become known for these activities when you repeat them so many times, you become known for that sin. For example, in our culture, oftentimes somebody we refer to as, well, he's a druggie. Meaning, not because the person consumed illegal drugs one time, but that's a pattern. So what you're seeing on the screen right now, the Bible's talking about what our culture calls addictions. All right? And uh, I'll say to you, basically, our culture uh, has no real answers for addictive behavior. Uh, In the counseling arena on addictive behavior, probably the gold standard in the world today is called Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, a lot of other uh, programs designed to help addicts is modeled after AA and what they do. Over the years, I've had the privilege of working with a number of people who at one time or another participated in AA. And I always ask them, well, tell me what your experience was like. And many people started attending Alcoholic Anonymous meetings because uh, they were ordered by the court after an arrest. Some were urged to do it by their family. Some said, I just realized I had a problem, I needed help, and so forth. And I talked to some who went to one meeting a week, some went to two, a lot, a lot went to two or three meetings a week. Talked to one guy, he's going five meetings a week. And um, I said, well, tell me what the meetings are like. And they said, well, there's some teaching, interaction, so forth. But there's going to come a time in the meeting every time when you're going to be asked to introduce yourself and you are taught that you introduce yourself by saying, hello, my name is so-and-so and I am an alcoholic. And every meeting at the appropriate time, you're going to introduce yourself, and you always say, my name is so-and-so, and and I am an alcoholic. And you're taught to do that. Even if you go to a meeting this week, you introduce yourself that way, even if the last time you consumed booze was 10 years ago. You know why? 
Because at the core of AA's belief system is the belief that alcoholism, their word, is something that you can't change. It's just like it gets you, just like cancer gets you or um, COVID gets you, so forth. At the core of their system, they don't think you can really change. They think the very best that you can do is learn to control it. And one way to help you learn to control it is keep reminding yourself, I am an alcoholic. What a hopeless system. And that's the gold standard for addictive behavior in our culture. Now, let me remind you of this passage, talking about addictive behaviors. Notice what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Not anymore. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What is God's answer for what our culture calls addictive behavior? Justification and progressive sanctification. Being born again, having a new heart, having the Holy Spirit inside you to convict you of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come, having the Word of God to teach you and to help you understand how you ought to think and act and to convict you when you're not, to teach you how to clean up the messes your sin has created, to teach you how to discipline yourself for the future. What is God's answer for addictive behavior in each of our lives? Being born again, justification and sanctification, growing and changing, being more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the kind of change the biblical counselors are seeking. It's not just 1 Corinthians that talks about this. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In biblical Christianity, it's not enough that you stop doing what's wrong. We've got to lay aside the old ways of thinking and acting. That's the put off. But in biblical Christianity, you don't just put off the old man. You've got to put on the new man. And notice that the new man is described as righteous, holy, and true. Those three describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Those three describe the Bible. So it means that we lay aside living by the lust or the the desires of our flesh as a result of transformed thinking, learning to think the way God wants us to. We adopt a lifestyle that is Christ-focused. We adopt a lifestyle that's focused on the Word of God. And rather than just doing what we want to do, we seek to do what we're commanded to do by God's Word. That's the kind of change the biblical counselors are committed to. This answers the question, what is our goal? We are not interested in helping people just rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic. We're not interested in just helping people rearrange their flesh. Our goal as biblical counselors, and your goal as a Christian when you're working with your friends, your colleagues as you're advising them, is that there is a new man by God's grace, that's manifested in putting things off, putting on as a result of changed thinking. Well, all of these lead us to the sixth commitment that I want to touch on, and that is a commitment to loving our neighbor. 
because of the, what I've talked about, these naturally lead to loving our neighbor. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40, a man comes to Christ trying to tempt him, and he says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Christ said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Later, in John 13, part of Christ's last teaching with his disciples, um, he said this, A new commandment I'm giving you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. One of the things that ought to mark our lives as Christians is we have a serious love for God that's reflected in our schedule. We have time to read his word. We have time to attend church services. We have time to serve. But we also have this love for others that manifests itself in being willing to serve in various capacities here. But we're serving not just at the church, but there's a servant spirit bent in our life that we're willing to help our neighbor, willing to help our co-workers and so forth. This is a serious issue because it answers the question for what should we be known and what we should be known for as individual Christians is our love for God and our willingness to serve him. What a church should be known for is a love for God and his word, but also a love for their fellow man. Well, just to summarize quickly, here's what we've talked about. I've been talking to you about biblical counseling, what it is. I tried to convince you that you are a counselor. Hopefully you're a biblical counselor. And I'm saying that there's some views that we have and that you should have as a Christian that should influence the kind of counsel you give. For example, you should have a commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. That's going to answer the question, what is your authority when you're advising people? You should have a commitment to the sufficiency of the scripture. That's going to answer the question, what is your guide? A commitment to the gospel is going to answer the question, what am I focused on? A commitment to making disciples should answer the question, what's my assignment? that I've been given. You should have a commitment to the kind of change talked about in the Bible that should answer what is your goal. And then you should have a commitment to loving your neighbor. And that answers the question, for what do I want to be known? Let me uh, just wrap up with these concluding comments. These six commitments, when lived out, will lead to a godly Christian being a fruitful people helper, regardless of age, education, or formal training in counseling. Think about that statement. That means that whether you're a high school student, high school dropout, college graduate, doesn't matter what your circumstances are in life, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be a fruitful people helper, even if you've never had one class in biblical counseling. If you know the Word of God and you seek to reflect biblical teaching, biblical priorities, you can be a fruitful helper regardless of your age and education. A second concluding comment is, biblical counselors are the only ones who sing our view of counseling. There's over 250 models of counseling out there. One of the things that makes biblical counseling unique, uh, let me catch up here. 
um, one of the things that makes biblical counseling unique is we're the only ones who sing our view of counseling. I want you to watch. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here in a little bit, but you just watch. And then watch in the future Sundays. Here's what happens at most of our church services. We sing songs about what a mess I am. What a great God you are. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross to make it possible for a wretch like me to be saved. Hallelujah for the cross. We're the only ones who sing our view of counseling. And it reflects our theology. If you'd like to do some more reading on it, I've mentioned some books like this, Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling and Scripture and Counseling. And uh, there's other books that are listed that can be wonderfully helpful. And you may want to consider enrolling and being a part of the class that's being taught at North Creek this year, maybe in the future. Let's pray together as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your grace in calling me to yourself. Thank you for your word that has been such a sure guide in my life over the years. Thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to sit with people who are struggling and being able to point them toward Christ and your word and your ways. And I pray that as a result of the the preaching, the teaching of your word this morning, that everyone listening will be stirred to be more biblical, to be careful to be biblical when they're giving advice on the issues of life and living so that you would be honored and glorified. Help us to be alert to opportunities for evangelism. Help us to be alert to discipling our children, our grandchildren, those in our circle of influence to become strong followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.